Well, 2016 wasn't a great year, unless you're Vladimir Putin, who at the very least must be a satisfied observer of destabilisation in the West. What does Putin see as Russia's best interests and how far is he prepared to go to pursue them? With US troops mounting on the Polish border with Belarus, in the same week Donald Trump is inaugurated as president, Talking Point has its eye on Russia. In studio, Ivor Crotty is head of social media for RT.com, the online arm of the Russian 24-hour news channel. Seamus Martin is a retired international editor with the Irish Times and John O'Brennan is a senior lecturer in Maynooth University. Seamus Martin, will you kick us off, please, with a backgrounder on Putin and how he came to power? Yeah, well, Putin's background, for a start, is fairly average uh, for a Russian of his age. Uh, He was born in 1952 in October to a fairly working-class family. His father was a factory foreman. Uh, He then, uh, after college, uh, joined the KGB, where he was posted to Dresden in East, what was then East Germany, uh, which engendered a famous remark from a KGB general called Yuri Kobaladze, who said, we didn't send our best men to Dresden. So he he wasn't a very senior KGB man. He was a lieutenant colonel, and this was a general putting him down, shall we say. Kabbalanzi is still around. Uh, he got away with that remark. So he then came back from East Germany, worked in the local St. Petersburg administration with the mayor, Anatoly Sobchak, a man who was, shall we say, under serious allegations for corruption, but anti-communist. He then moved... Uh, to Moscow after some time in the St. Petersburg administration, worked in the Kremlin property management section. The Kremlin owns properties throughout Moscow and throughout Russia. Uh, the leader of that organisation, a man called Borodin, was also accused of corruption. In fact, he was invited to the inauguration of George W. Bush and was arrested on, arri- on arrival in, in Kennedy Airport, which was a very strange occurrence. An invitation he shouldn't have yes, accepted, Yes, exactly. Perhaps. So then he worked his way up through the Kremlin organisation, became head of the security services, and then in 1999 became prime minister. Now, this was quite a remarkable situation because Yeltsin was president at the time and was promoting and sacking people to the prime ministership uh, like nobody's business. I mean, he had Yevgeny Primakov, who was well-known, also close to the KGB. Uh, You had Sergei Kirienka, who basically no one had ever heard of until he was appointed uh, prime minister. You had Sergei Stepashin. And then finally, he chose uh, Putin in August 1999. Then... In September, there were the apartment bombings in Moscow and in other parts of the, the Russian Federation, uh, which led to, or which preceded the uh, Second Chechen War. Uh, Yeltsin was still president, by the way, when the Second Chechen, Chechen War started. But finally, on New Year's Eve 1999, just before we entered the, the new century, I was in my apartment in Moscow. Phone rang. It was my friend and colleague, Kathy Lally, of the Washington Post. Said, switch on your TV, Quick Yeltsin is on TV resigning. Not only did he resign, he appointed Putin as his president-elect, basically. This meant that Putin was certain to win the presidential election in 2000. That's how he arrived to the presidency. He had a short little sachet with Medvedev in order to stay within the constitutional situation. And here he is now, uh, nearly nearly 20 years later. He will have been power in Russia almost as long as de Valera was in (laughs) Ireland. (laughs) Ivor Crotty, what is Mm. his mandate? Well, he's, he has electoral he's, mandate. He, is he popular? He's hugely well. Look, hugely popular is the extent to which you, you, you believe polls and poll numbers. Yeah, but, but Putin has consistently polled over seventy percent approval rating. I think throughout his presidency. 
um, you, the, the the veracity of those polls can be argued over all day and all night. I think we'll all agree. You're, you're the, uh, uh, we, we, I really wouldn't know how much uh, uh, to attach to those. But it's quite clear that he does enjoy a um, you know a conservative, um, somewhat you know nationalistic. Uh, you know, he enjoys popularity with that kind of conservative nationalistic rump, uh, as you might call it, in the Russian electorate. Um, uh, Russian electoral participation uh, is also reasonably high. You know, it's in around fifty percent. Uh, um, uh, but of course, as we know, uh, the elections have had a reputation for uh, you know widespread uh, vote rigging um, and ballot box stuffing, etc. So again, it's you know it's, it's very tough to kind of you know arrive at accurate figures or kind of give you some kind of metric on it. But it's quite clear in terms of his policy. Um, you know, he's he's played himself perhaps not unlike uh, uh, the De Valera comparison, as you know, he's become some somewhat akin to the kind of you know the the uh, l'état c'est moi, you know, um, and uh, that that. He can rule with an iron iron fist if and when it's necessary in terms of like policy changes or staff changes. And for those people that do like him and approve of how he's running the country, what is it that they like? Oh, well, I mean, quite simply, if you look at the rise in living standards, you know, since 2000, uh, and particularly through the noughties, it was meteoric, absolutely meteoric. I mean, the the economic numbers are there for themselves. There there was effectively no middle class in Russia in 2000. You know, there is now. It's gigantic. You know, there's, I think there's about five Ikeas around Moscow alone. You know, I mean, you've got to think of the scale uh, when considering It's interesting that that would be a measure of consumer sentiment. And yes, it probably is, like McDonald's used to be. Yeah, for example. Well, yeah, and, you know, and, and the first McDonald's, we all know, Pushkin Square was, was you know, was a big deal. You know, since closed down, etc. But uh, so you, you, you've seen a market economy, you know, arise in, in Russia. It's, it, you know, it, it arose in the '90s and disastrously fell apart in 1998 and created absolute, you know, another round of social chaos. It arose again through through the uh, 2000s. Um, Russia found itself in a reasonably strong position going into the crisis. It was able to, into the financial crisis, it was able to buffer itself uh, by, you know, basically, at that, I think in '09 it probably had half a trillion worth of gold and so cash is, reserves. is that what he brought, that after the chaos of the collapse of communism, that he was thought to or seen to bring a measure of order like, to Like all economy. truisms, it's kind of true. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, if you speak to anybody who, who lived through the 1990s, well, you know, Shane will certainly tell you, you know, you know Moscow is, if I, Moscow is not Russia, Russia is not Moscow. But the, uh, there is a stability, uh, for better and for worse, you know, uh, um, but there's but there's certainly, you know, there was a great economic stability and economic, you know, economic growth, you know, Anybody is anybody is going. Any you know serious politician is going to be able to maintain a power base based on that kind of growth numbers and those kind of growth figures and the increase in wealth. You know, but uh, the you know, things have really, in my opinion, things. You know, the, the Putin success story really started to fall apart once we move into that crisis era, and then you then you look at situations that you know how he dealt with Ukraine. Yeah, for example, you know, and then the you know the, this this sanctions uh, cycle and how the economy was re- was really suffered from that. And certainly, you know, if you if you pe- people you'll speak to in Moscow, small business owners and you know people who who might need credit from banks and stuff like that. It's been a, you know been quite a tough time. So that the economy helped him um, establish his power. But the Absolutely, weakening yeah. of the economy is weakening his power now. Would you say go that far? Well, I don't think. I mean, it's it certainly the power and mandate. You, you, uh, you, does it weaken his power? No, it doesn't weaken his power. Uh, I would say, or the power of the state. Let's say, you know, uh, it, it certainly doesn't. Um, but uh, it certainly does damage his reputation as a politician. You know, of course, of course, it does, as, as any uh, economic crisis would. So, John O'Brennan, what? Is it that Putin sees as being in Russia's best interests globally? And as I said at the start, how far do you think he's prepared to go to pursue those? Well, I think to understand how Putin sees the world beyond Russia and how yeah. Russian elites see the world, the 1990s is absolutely critical. The collapse that Ivor and Seamus talked about and uh, its importance to um, how these emerging elites uh, in Putin's case, from Saint, coming from St. Petersburg to Moscow, who are taking over the apparatus of the state, how they view the world. And uh, in particular, the lost status of Russia globally looms really large. I mean, the Putin continually talks about the lack of respect of other leaders, whether it's the United States or those from Europe. And he has some grounds for that complaint. Uh, but I think the broader picture is about Russia's position and its decline uh, gradually over time. Putin made uh, a landmark statement at 
some point in his presidency where he said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in history. And he wasn't being ideologically nostalgic for the Soviet Union. Uh, Rather, it was about Russian power and how it had been so degraded and reduced over time. That's what he regrets. And so much of what he has done in his foreign policy since 2000 has been about trying to restore Russia's position in the world. And if you look at recent Russian actions in Syria, for example, uh, that's that's never far from uh, the surface. So I think if we're to understand the kind of moves that he's made in geopolitics in Russia's immediate neighborhood and beyond, it is about securing that former status as a great power that's very important. And he thinks, you know, I, my view of him is that he thinks like a 19th century ruler, in a sense, mm. uh, where we had established great powers and great metropolitan centres. We had empires, not just in Russia, but in the, the British Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, and the um, constellation of power globally um, uh, at, at that level was relatively easy to manage. Uh, that all fell apart in 1914, of course, when the empires uh, fell apart. But in some senses, I think he's very nostalgic for that world uh, that has been lost. And so much of what he has done subsequently has been about trying to uh, reposition Russia to uh, to you know, back up a kind of um, muscular diplomacy uh, and other elements as well. So if you take something like Syria, you know, where he's basically helping helping Assad win the war or the annexation um, of Crimea. How much of that is to do with this restoration of um, the appearance of Russia being a great world power? And how much are those actions actually materially beneficial to Russia, say maybe in terms of access to the, the sea or something like that? Do you know what I mean? How much is real and how much is he genuinely has to yeah. um, well, acquire? Well, I think things have changed recently, but I think we should just go back yeah. to the era that Seamus left off with when Putin takes power in 2000. Uh, he was greeted very warmly by Western leaders. Tony Blair was the first foreign leader to visit St. Petersburg and uh, for a couple of years, the relationship was very strong. When the Americans uh, were attacked on 9-11, Russia provided not inconsiderable support, including agreeing to an American air base in uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, they thought it was a temporary move. Uh, they were prepared to help because they had a commonality of interest uh, around Chechen terrorism and tackling it. Um, but relations turned very sour simply when the Americans didn't keep their uh, side of the bargain. There were other issues as well around debt. The London Club uh, of debtors, for example, was calling in Russian debts. This was just before the Russian economy began to take off as oil prices increased. So there were a whole series of things mm-hmm. that soured Putin's relationship with the West, and it got worse and worse subsequently. More recently, to turn to Syria, uh, I think uh, it's been about uh, not just reasserting uh, Russian power, but directly competing with the United States in the Middle East. And I think the most important event there was Barack Obama's red line yes. to Bashar Assad when the suburb of Damascus, Gauta, had been uh, targeted with chemical weapons. Uh, I think that was the green light to Putin to say to him that you are not going to be opposed if you make further moves. And certainly in Washington, I think, uh, when people look at Barack Obama's record, they see this as something that was, uh, exhibited weakness. And, that, and to somebody of Putin's mentality, that gave the green light to do other things. Um, so Seamus Martin, can we say then that he started out wanting to have positive relationships with the West and he, it was the West's fault that they turned sour? Well, there was an element of fault as far as the West was concerned, particularly NATO's expansion to the borders of of Russia. Uh, now, this is a bit of a grey area, uh, but what Russians believe is that Gorbachev was promised that NATO would not move to the borders of Russia, provided that uh, the Soviet Union took its army out of what was then East Germany. Uh, so they do believe that they were betrayed in, in that case. There was an, uh, an attempt by Putin 
uh, and by the West to get together at the, at the beginning. Uh, not only did Tony was Tony Blair the first person, uh, the first Western leader to, to come to Putin. He went there before Putin was even elected, and virtually took part in Putin's election campaign. Uh, which was quite a bizarre situation. Why would he have done that? Why did he see that? I think you have, you know, I don't want to launch a major attack on our neighbours, which some people now call Brexit Stan. (laughs) Uh, That's a new one, not me. (laughs) Uh, But they are great opportunists. I mean, you had, for example... uh, Wasn't Blair having dinner with Gaddafi in a tent around the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, you also also have... uh, Boris Johnson just coming back from Donald Trump. I mean, these guys get in as fast as they can when they see chance. But, you know, things, as, as John said, uh, and very rightly pointed out, uh, things have gone from bad to worse ever since then. Uh, the bit about uh, supporting Bashar Assad is interesting. I don't think he's actually supporting Bashar Assad in person. He is supporting the Syrian regime uh, because it suits Russia to do so. Russia is looking after its own interests in the area. And, you know, part of Russia is almost in that region. Uh, it borders Turkey on the uh, Black Sea and it borders Iran in the in the Caspian Sea. So it's a big country. Uh, but I think that if and when it suits Russia, they'll ditch Assad. The Ivor Karate. If Putin then has this nostalgic view of what Russia's place in the world should be and he is um, living out or acting out this sense of nostalgia um, by trying to assert more control over Eastern Europe in particular, that's Hmm. a bad thing for all of us. Kind of a leading question though, yeah. I'm I'm not sure if he's trying to assert more control over Eastern Europe, I mean, quote unquote. I mean, you know... I think that's a little as an overstatement of the reality, to be honest. And with Crimea, how would well, you of frame course, that? Well, of course, I mean, you know, but, but Crimea, Crimea is, of course, you know, it's a case apart, uh, um, you know. But I certainly don't expect, and I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, predict under any circumstances, um, you know, a, some form of militaristic attempt to to colonise or annex, uh, you know, any form of territory in Eastern Europe. You know, absolutely not. Uh, Crimea, Crimea is, you know. A, a, uh, you know, a, a, a former, you know, it, well, strategically massively important for Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I honestly think that the the Putin threat is overplayed. The Russia threat is overplayed, and I think that that suits an awful lot of uh, uh, you know narratives, um, you know, based particularly based around NATO. John O'Brien. Uh, can I say, I don't mm. think the threat is overstated mm. uh, for a number of reasons. I spend a lot of time in Central and Eastern Europe and there is mm. real fear in Poland and in the Baltic states in particular, looking sure. at what happened in Crimea and in the Donbass as well in 2014. But to go back a little bit, Putin's strategy, I think, with regard to Eastern Europe and the EU, uh, he wasn't particularly opposed to EU expansion. As Seamus said, it was NATO expansion that was particularly difficult. Um, But regarding the EU, his strategy has been one of disruption and divide and rule. And he has sought to to hive off, if you like, um, member states, Poland, Hungary, the Baltics, and so on, states that are now, since 2004, members of the EU. And Russia has employed a variety of strategies to try and co-opt elites uh, in Bulgaria, for example, in uh, Serbia, outside of the EU, but in a, a prospective member state, on a whole range of things. And the aim has been to try and draw these uh, countries out of the orbit of the European Union into, not necessarily into a Russian orbit, but into a kind of buffer zone. And this goes back to what I was saying about the historical position. Russia was attacked, remember, uh, twice dramatically over the last 200 years or so by France uh, under Napoleon uh, and subsequently by Hitler. So the popular kind of memory of that and what in the Second World War's case the Russians call the Great Patriotic War is really important. So when they look at the West, they see a threat. We might look out and see a benign kind of liberal world, but that's not what many Russians see. And Putin made some odd comments a couple of years ago talking back to the first part of World War II when, of course, the Soviet Union and Germany 
were aligned, were together. And he was almost praising that original pact with Hitler and with Germany. And the idea seemed to be that he was harking back to a time when um, Europe and Russia would divide up influence of Eastern Europe between the two of them, that that was seen as yeah. their territory. Yeah. Well, this is one of the great tragedies for me, Sarah, of this modern era, that um, Russia and the United States as great powers are kind of mired in history. Uh, and history tends to repeat itself in the same ways, the European Union represented something different. It was this great kind of experiment in cross-national governance, and it revolved around um, um, countries volunteering, if you like, some of their sovereignty for the greater collective good. And the tragedy is that Russia turned away from that project in the 1990s when it could have been part of it. Uh, And so in a sense, the elites have gone back to that world that we're so familiar with, this terrible Hobbesian world of tragedy, um, prioritizing power, strategic Mm -hmm. interests over cooperation with neighboring states. It's that kind of return to bipolarity, John, isn't it, really? Now, Erin Bauman is a fellow at UCD's Dublin European Institute. She's based at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. I spoke to her earlier. Now, for 10 years, Rex Tillerson has been the chairman and chief executive at ExxonMobil, the massive oil and gas company, which has done many international deals, including some with Russia. He's Donald Trump's nominee for Secretary of State. And I asked Erin about how his confirmation hearings went on Wednesday. The hearings were really interesting because I think there have always been hawks inside uh, the Republican Party, this kind of hawkish versus the more isolationist dynamic has been playing out in the Republican Party for at least you know, the last 10 or so years. Um, and on the hawk side, you've long had John McCain and Lindsey Graham, as well as some others, um, taking this very firm, almost Cold War style line against Russia, which really sees them as our primary adversary. I mean, John McCain was famously um, famously backed Mitt Romney in the 2012 election when Romney said he believed that Russia was our biggest current and potential future adversary in international affairs. Um, and now you're seeing in the committee, I think one of the things that really struck people most here in the U.S. was the fervor with which Marco Rubio really took up that line of being the new young-blooded hawk Republican. And he absolutely laid into Tillerson over his connections to Russia and his views on Russia. Um, And frankly, at at times, it seemed as though Tillerson was receiving more criticism from Republicans than he was from Democrats, at least for his attitude towards Russia. So Tillerson's hearing much like that of Jeff Sessions and Mike Pompeo and John Mattis, have been a bit confusing in that what we're hearing is not what what we're hearing from them is not what we've been hearing from Trump or from his transition team. There were points at which I was personally listening live into the hearing and I thought to myself, I, I wasn't quite sure. Tillerson said he'd never spoken directly with Donald Trump about Russia. And I was beginning to wonder if he'd actually spoken to Donald Trump about anything because their positions seemed to be so different. Um, you know, he he discussed openly the fact that um, Article 5 of the uh, NATO treaty is inviolable. Article 5 is the article, it's the collective security article in the NATO treaty, which says that if any member of NATO is attacked, other other NATO allies will come to their support. Um, And Trump has been critical, not just of Article 5, but he's been critical of all of NATO um, and very vocally. And so Tillerson saying that Article 5 is inviolable and then also going on to say that he thinks that our NATO allies and our relationship with our NATO allies are extremely important, that NATO plays an important role in our in our security. That's, you know, it's just something that we we weren't expecting, or at least I wasn't expecting to hear so forthrightly from a Trump nominee, um, because it does stand in contrast to what Trump has personally been saying. Right. So that could be conflict down the line. Now, Donald Trump said at his press conference that if he had a good relationship with Putin, and he might not, but if he did, that that would be an asset, not a liability. Do you agree with that statement? I. So it's it's hard. I have a hard time with Trump. And I think it's, you know, I, 
some of it is some of it is that the press conference, I mean, the press conference in and of itself had little to no coherent narrative. So it was hard to figure out where he was going. At one point, he admitted for the first time that he believed Russia was behind the hack of the DNC. And then he went on to make the statement that you just brought up about, you know, is is having a good relationship with Putin good? I think taking Trump out of the equation, if we're just to look at is having an American, a leader, an American president, um, is having leaders inside the U.S. who have a good relationship with Russia a positive thing? Um, I think it is. I think it would be a positive change. I think the problem with the line that on the right, Rubio, McCain, Graham, and others, and on the left, um, including former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who you know I, I publicly supported, but you know many inside kind of the more left-wing foreign policy establishment. The problem with the the policy that both sides have supported is that it's very black and white. You really either view Russia as a country that must be our enemy number one, they are completely Cold War style, and we have to look at them as nothing other than an adversary, or it's, you know, they must be our best friend. And, you know, I, I personally believe in, you know, a lot of others within kind of the more academic foreign policy circles, um, believe that good foreign policy cannot be black and white. It has to be gray. You have to be able to be flexible. And being flexible includes being willing and able to look at a country like Russia and say, they may not be our best friends, but we can work with them on certain things. Um, so no one, no one country, no one leader should be considered purely adversarial or purely friendly. Um, it has to be about kind of picking and choosing buffet style what works for the country at what time. That being said, when I bring when I bring Trump into the equation, the problem that I have when I look at and I listen to his policies are I don't see an understanding of how foreign policy actually works. And I see someone who believes that he can have this kind of negotiator style, very businessman, boardroom, bulldog in a China shop attitude towards towards Vladimir Putin. And if Trump and I do agree on one thing, it's that Vladimir Putin is an unbelievably intelligent individual. And I think Putin fully realizes that in Trump, he has someone who is going to be easily played because he just doesn't know what he's gotten himself into. Okay, well, let's move from Washington to Russia. What does Putin want and what is his strategy to get it? So this has, I think, been question question one for years now, um, and in particular over the last kind of four or so years. Um, what Putin wants is pretty clear when you look at it. The undercut is that he wants what he believes is best for Russia. Whether you believe that that's grounded in ideas of kind of historical, almost ph- philosophical pan-Slavism, this belief that, you know, Slavs are inherently Slavs and Slavic culture and civilizations are inherently different from the West and therefore cannot peacefully coexist with Western civilization, or you believe it's simply rooted in power politics. The fact of the matter is that Putin and the Kremlin have for at least the last four years, if not the last 16 years, blatantly supported policies that seek to destabilize and undermine the power of the liberal Western order. And that primarily focuses around the United States and the European Union. And he's, when you look at it objectively, it's pretty hard to deny that Putin's foreign policy has been pretty successful. In particular, in the last four years since he returned to the presidency, he's done a really good job of taking these small incremental, but often very strategically significant actions, and then waiting to see how the West would respond. So when you look at what happened in Crimea, what you see is that was his first really big, bold move following the Maidan protests in Ukraine. And when the West didn't respond, you know, militarily, when they didn't take a deeper, harder response, it really emboldened him. And then the actions in Syria came out and the West wasn't able to really cobble together a clear response. So he continued and he's always done this kind of like act, wait and see how the West responds, then move forward. And He's used that in combination with this new formation of kind of more long distance alliances with Western and Western order leaders like Viktor Orban and Marine Le Pen and Geert Wilders and now potentially Donald Trump. And he's used that to kind of create a two front destabilizing campaign against the West, one in, internet, one in the inter- realm of international affairs 
and one in the realm of domestic affairs in foreign countries. So if you take Syria, what is the advantage to Russia in winning that war? Is it simply about beating the West or is there a material benefit in winning? So I think, I mean, one part of it is undeniably that he just makes the West look bad. He makes the West look like they can't cobble together a response to what is probably the greatest humanitarian tragedy um, of the of the current century. Um, but the other thing that he's able to do with Syria is he's able to kind of take a line that he, that he and Russia have long taken Kremlin policy, which believes that um, kind of this inviolability of um, national sovereignty and particularly government sovereignty over their own territory. And, you know, there are potential critiques for saying that that's extremely hypocritical, especially when you look at a place like their actions in Ukraine. Um, but their stated, Russia and the Kremlin's stated line of foreign policy has always been that they believe first and foremost in the inviolability of government sovereignty over their own territory. And that's why supporting someone like Assad makes sense in terms of their dictate on foreign policy. Having him there is better because it maintains kind of status quo order, whether he is a good guy or not. Now, the other thing to be said is there's a very clear um, attachment between this policy, Russia's behavior in Syria, and their longstanding campaign against um whether you want to call it Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism or just terrorism in and around the groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I mean, this goes all the way. Russia has long stood staunchly against um, terrorism. And this goes all the way back to Chechnya and the problems that they've had in the Caucasus region. Um, So part of this campaign is also inextricably linked to their fight against Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism. Um, in the form of ISIS in Syria. Okay, but there's been an argument that NATO's behaviour on Russia's western border is provocative. So just this week, a thousand of a promised 4,000 US troops arrived in Poland as part of what's called the biggest deployment of troops in Europe since the end of the Cold War. And it's going to see US troops permanently stationed along Russia's western border. Now, why is NATO doing this? Is it necessary? Well, I think it it is necessary at this point, and I think that NATO's finally um, taking some visible action um, to stand up for Article 5, to stand up and actually flex the muscle that they do have. Um, I mean, the bigger criticism within the West of NATO has long been that they haven't done anything. They have kind of sat around and not taken any action with this type of provocation. Um, Now, Ukraine isn't a member of NATO. They've long been an associate. Uh, There were rumors that they might get membership back in around the early 2000s up until like 2006, 2008, but they never actually gained membership. And the idea of membership in Ukraine has never been particularly popular with the public. But, you know, Poland and the Baltic states are members of NATO. Therefore, they do fall under that collective security agreement in Article 5. And the Baltic states in particular have been very clear that they feel a direct threat from Russia. And when you look at the more recent troop buildups, which haven't been widely publicized, but Russia has been building up troops all along the eastern border of Belarus. And when you get close to the eastern border of Belarus, you also get very close to the eastern border of Lithuania and Latvia. So the Baltic states are worried. And I think this is NATO finally flexing the muscle that they have and trying to come back at Putin with something that they believe he will understand, which is the threat of force. Okay, so if this all goes badly globally, where do you see the weak point being? Um, There are different regions. I have long felt that the bigger flashpoint doesn't actually involve Russia. The The most worrying flashpoint in international affairs has to be the South China Sea. Um, and there are tons of dynamics around that. But if we're looking specifically kind of at the, the Eurasian and the European front and that, that arena, it still exists along that borderland between Russia and Belarus. And I think, you know, this buildup of troops along the Belarusian border, I, I said to a couple of people, you know, the Financial Times does a what do you predict will happen in this year every year? And they offer you the potential for having your name printed at one point. And I have said that I might consider throwing in the idea that Russia would start taking actions in Belarus the way that they have in eastern Ukraine. And not I, I don't actually know if that would be the big destabilizing force, but I think 
Vladimir Putin has undeniably grown bolder. And the West has helped to bring that about by not actually responding in a really clear, coherent or decisive manner. And I think if Putin continues down the line that he is, he is going to continue trying to destabilize the West. And that is a big threat to the current status quo order that we know, because he believes um, that the Western order as it stands now is a direct threat to Russia and its national interests. And he will do whatever he has to do to stand up for Russia and its national interests, no matter who or what he has to crush in the way. Is he right? Is the West a direct threat to Russia's interests? <sighs> from his perspective, if I put my hat on from his perspective, the West is a threat to him because the West firmly disagrees with the vision that he has for the world. It's an extremely like, realpolitik, Slavic-centered viewpoint. And the West, in particular, led by the U.S., which, you know, I'm proud to be American. That being said, we have been quite hypocritical and continue to be quite hypocritical in our actions. And one of them has been this belief that, you know, we can do things worldwide, but we don't want others to do them in return. And Putin has been, Putin and Russia more specifically, have been victims of that action. And it, you know, going all the way back to the 90s, it's been widely publicized the way in which the U.S. kind of pushed Russia around. Now, does that give credit or does it give allowance to everything that Putin has done in a place like Ukraine and that he may potentially do elsewhere? Does it give credit that he is standing by nationalist candidates who support, you know, the type of politics that I think many in the West see as threatening, damaging, dangerous, and reprehensible? No, it doesn't give it permission. But I think if you take a more objective look at it, you can see how and why Putin views the West to be threatening to him and more broadly to the interests of Russia and its people. Now, you mentioned China earlier. At Rex Tillerson's confirmation hearings, his most provocative comments were actually about China and their activities in the South China Sea. With all this hysteria about Russia, are we looking in the wrong place? And actually, we should be looking more at China and how badly that might go. Well, I think this is, I mean, this is the complicated part about foreign policy. And this is why I say it always has to be nuanced. Part of the, what the media has to do is they have to have a story of the day. And I think the story of the day now and for the last few months and probably in the coming months has and rightfully has been about Russia. That being said, the more long-term issue, the bigger issue in the next five to 10 years is undeniably the South China Sea because Abe, Shinzo Abe in Japan has used increasingly, I think, nationalistic language and he has started to tip his hat towards the idea of a potential and it has been potential, there's nothing been said firmly, but a potential remilitarization of Japan. If Japan remilitarizes and we continue to see an emboldened China, we are looking at a, a really big powder keg of action in the South China Sea. So I think that if the foreign policy establishment turns their head away from the South China Sea at any point, whether they turn it towards Russia or they turn it towards the Middle East, they are really missing the bigger long-term issue. Okay, so finally, back to Russia. Where do you rate Russia's place as a world power today? In terms of power, I put them a solid third in that. I mean, they don't challenge China and they don't challenge they don't challenge the U.S. right now. Um, and what I've said and what I will stand by is that Russia is undeniably a resurgent regional power in Eurasia. But they are not yet, and I don't believe that they are firmly challenging world power status. Now, they are coming up that 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 listing. Um, they are still, depending upon your measure, the second largest military power in the world. Um, their economy holds them back, and it will continue to hold them back. Um, I mean, I wouldn't exactly go as far as Lindsey Graham to use dubious measures and say that their economy is only the size of Italy. But you know, they have the eighth largest economy in the world, but it's a weak economy and it's an extremely risk-laden economy because it is still so dependent upon natural resources. Um, but that being said, the trajectory of Russian power over the next five years is just as dependent upon Western actions as it is upon the actions of Putin and, and whatever government is inside the Kremlin. Um, so resurgent in Eurasia right now, but not yet really challenging global power status. 
And that was Erin Bauman, fellow at UCD's Dublin European Institute based at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Seamus Martin, going back to one of the points we were making there about Russia, is Putin right? Is the West a direct threat to Russia's interests or is Russia a direct threat to the West's interests? I don't think he's a direct threat to us, certainly. I don't think... Actually, he, maybe we should define us. Yeah, well... <laughs> Who do you mean by us? I mean Ireland. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. OK, yeah. Um, I think, to some extent, though, that NATO is part of the problem rather than part of the solution to the worries uh, that exist in Eastern Europe and in the Baltics. In what way? Uh, in that, you must remember, NATO is a military alliance. And in order, it, it's raison d'etre, is that there must be an enemy. That's, you know, armies need enemies. And they found the absolutely perfect enemy now in Putin. They, they tried a few other uh, uh, people, but they weren't as... Does the same apply to him, that he needs an enemy? He's got this weakening economy, and, you know, there's nothing like a war to distract the people from yeah, that economy. Yeah, well, I mean, about he's not going to have a war with, with uh, NATO. I mean, there's absolutely no, no doubt about that. Ivor? Absolutely. No, uh, listen, yeah. I, we haven't mentioned Libya and NATO, and okay. that's really important, okay. and Europe, and immigration, and, and the tragedy of the Mediterranean. We, I think it's really, really important to bring that dynamic into this conversation geopolitically, simply because uh, the, the, this, the greatest rebuke Putin handed to Medvedev when Medvedev was president during this, during this tandem, uh, and you know, there were some of us naive enough to believe that there might have been hope for a, a, you know, a, a more liberal agenda around that time, but the coffin nail, absolute coffin nail was Libya, when Medvedev uh, allowed the UN Security Council vote on uh, 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 Russia uh, abstained its vote on the U- mm-hmm. UN Security Council on Libya. And Putin murdered Medvedev for that. He was he uh, like literally it was the, it was the biggest public rebuke Medvedev has ever received uh, from Putin. And we need to talk about Libya in terms of, for example, uh, you know, like NATO's NATO's capacity I th- you know, to get it so terribly wrong. Uh, and to you know to instigate a kind of you know unplanned uh, disastrous uh, regime change or lead from behind I think was the uh, was the expression used uh, by the Americans at the time uh, when Gaddafi was being removed. Now in Russia, th- this was you know, th- there were great fantastic experts uh, coming into coming into the channel where I worked. There was a guy called Margelov uh, who's who a really brilliant man at the time and and would, would literally just said, "Look, you're going to see tribal warfare, uh, armors, and a massive." Uh, um, increase in the, in the amount of weapons in that space and into, uh, which will run into Central Africa mm-hmm. and you're going to see the, the emergence of terrorist, terrorist armies and terrorism right across the region. And that's exactly what happened. You know, it was quite clear it was a, a, a totally that happened and of course then uh, as we all know uh, the, the absolute tragic um, uh, opening of the uh, mig- migration corridor, put it that way, across the Mediterranean. Uh, and you know, frankly you need to look at, at uh, you know, um, Cameron, um, Sarkozy and Obama and Obama's people. Uh, as the people who absolutely led that utterly disastrous foray in, into uh, Libya. Now, it's not to say Gaddafi is a good guy in any way, shape or form. Of course, mm. that would be daft. But, uh, you know, but you need yeah, to no, look at that. Yeah, no, we had voices on you, this you, show. You need to look at late, like the Russian perception that NATO can act idiotically and create instabilities. And there's that feeling, and, and that probably also fed an element of, of uh, what people were f- felt was happening in Ukraine as well, that this thing was being artificially driven to an extent that was becoming destructive. So, John, who do you fault the most then? Well, we shouldn't forget that one of the important reasons for the lack of trust between Western leaders and Putin is actually what's happened in Russia itself. Russia mm. has become a tyranny over the last 20 years. All forms of opposition Politics have been closed down. The Russian parliament, the Duma, is the plaything of the Kremlin, and it does its bidding at will. There is no opposition of any kind to be found there. All forms virtually of independent journalism have disappeared. Anybody who opposes the regime disappears. So one of the real problems is that this criminal kleptocratic regime, and I make no apologies for using that phrase, I think it's extremely accurate in how it depicts Putin and the networks around him, the way they have monopolized power in Russia and the way they have taken Russia in that deeply illiberal direction is one of the reasons that he is so mistrusted in European capitalism. Would, would the West care about that? 
if he wasn't threatening their strategic interests outside of his own country? Uh, Yes, I think many Mm -hmm. uh, leaders actually do care about those things. Uh, And one of the problems that uh, keeps arising in the relationship with the EU is that the EU is built around the rule of law. Russia increasingly is a state defined by what Medvedev himself referred to as legal nihilism. I think John uh, exaggerated the constraints upon the media in in Russia. Now, this is a place where journalists have been murdered. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, the journalists have been murdered here, by the way, as well. Uh, that's a completely different uh, situation. Uh, however, you, there is... And there still remains uh, elements of a free media in Russia. Uh, For example, TV Dojd is a TV station. It has 17 million viewers and it is definitely independent and takes a very strong anti-Putin line. Uh, The last time I was in Russia, I uh, interviewed uh, Tikhon Dyadko, who was the, the head of that station. They they are under pressure from the state, there's no doubt about that. But there are a lot of very brave independent journalists in Russia. Uh, I'm thinking of a particularly good friend who was, was killed in Ukraine uh, called Andrei Mironov uh, who worked for uh, it's, admittedly it's a small newspaper Novaya Gazeta, but they've had three people who, who were, were killed uh, uh, and they are continuing. It's a small newspaper, but it does exist. It's this. Russia is not Saudi Arabia. Yeah. You know, it, and it's, it's halfway between Saudi Arabia and a Western democracy. Now, so, Ivor, I mean, your employers come under a lot of um, mm-hmm. attention because it, um, or Russia Today or Publicity, RT yeah. is funded by the Kremlin. So what is, are your working conditions like or what influence if any do you come under how do you answer the allegations that RT uh-huh. is a, a propaganda machine yeah, uh, well honestly honestly you know it's 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 a question that uh, sometimes it's just easier not to engage with simply because it's it, you know, you're just better not getting on with your job you know uh, and doing your job well uh, and and publishing news um, and fact Uh so, so to be honest with you, uh, you know, I can understand why uh, people will, uh, you know, w- would attack the channel. Uh, you know, they, they see it as, as, um, you know, mischievous, and they see it, uh, you know, they, they'll see it as, as, you know, pushing a narrative that certainly, um, you know, you, you won't find in a lot of the great, great uh, democratic, democratic uh, um, institutions of the free Western media, et cetera, et cetera, quote unquote. Uh, so, you know, I can understand why it gets all the grief, but at the same time, you know, you know, it, it, uh, it, the the um, directors of national intelligence handed the channel probably, I'd say, in my opinion, twenty million dollars worth of free advertising last week with this utterly hilarious report that they tried to produce to say that, you know, by reporting on fracking, by reporting on, you know, being critical of American foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that, uh, you know, this was somehow, uh, you know, uh, a, a clear indicator that Putin was, um, uh, Putin was, uh, you know, running, uh, uh, running this channel. Uh, I'll give you another great example. Uh, we here in the Dublin newsroom, we were, pu- we were uh, keeping an eye on the Podesta email breaks as, as WikiLeaks was publishing them. And it was quite clear after a couple of days that WikiLeaks was publishing them at breakfast time in New York. So they were trying to set the news agenda each time with an email batch, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, about 2 p.m. Dublin time, they were published. Uh, we, uh, you know, be in the Dublin newsroom, we kept an eye on it. And uh, on the Thursday, I suggested to a young guy who had come through Storyful, uh, one of Dublin's most you know uh, ambitious and successful digital news organisations, uh, uh, a guy who, who worked there, so keep an eye on the site, you know, have a look. WikiLeaks typically publish around this time. He went onto the site, had a quick look, came back to me and said, there's 1,900 new emails with today's date stamp on it, but WikiLeaks hasn't tweeted this yet. Shall we? And I knew very well that if we were to do that, uh, you know, this was going to feed into like the, the, the conspiracy theory that, you know, Russia is somehow working with WikiLeaks, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, we did it and uh, did it twice again subsequently uh, uh, over the, com- the, the next three or four days. And each time we did it, a senior Clinton campaign staffer tweeted that this was evidence somehow that, uh, you know, Russia was, was working with or WikiLeaks and RT were working hand in hand. And these were these were these were conspiracy theories peddled around by journalists, uh, you know, who work for you know the British the, or the 
uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. You know, Washington Post picked it up and said, you know, and and it's a conspiracy theory. You know, like WikiLeaks themselves said we'd uploaded the files. You yeah, know, like so, so there's an awful lot of you know, like, and we're getting it close to fake news and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, as well. but but even yeah. on that, I mean, John, I noticed stories during the week where you know Russia gets accused, um, or even um, RT.com was being accused, and headlines are still there of taking mm-hmm. over CNN's feed. C-SPAN. Uh, C-SPAN's yeah. feed. Thanks, Ivor. And actually, C-SPAN admitted, oh, no, they didn't. It was just a mistake <laughs> in our internal route. But the headlines are still there. Is there hysteria about fake news and propaganda? Yes. And it goes way beyond Russia. And it's completely mm-hmm. justified. My own experience, one experience with Russia today, RT's predecessor, before it was rebranded, entirely different to Ivor's. Uh, I had written something that was critical of the European Union and its refugee policy. And Russia today tucked this up. They phoned me. I was in Warsaw. It was this time last year, I think. And I was, actually, I did the George Hook show. And then I was supposed to go on Russia today. And they called me because they presumed I was taking an anti-EU line. But I made it clear to the producer that I was also going to criticize Russia. I was... Mm-hmm quietly dropped from the show immediately because they were not prepared to tolerate any challenge to that narrative. Now, that's rather typical. And I have to say to Wiper, I think you do work for a fake news channel. Well, you know, that's your opinion. And, and you know, I'll, I'll fight to the death for you to, to maintain your opinion. Like, you know, fine. You know, you're welcome to it. Seamus? Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of fake news around. Mm. Uh, and I think we've got to look at where the face, fake news is coming from. It, and it's coming from both sides, in my view. Uh, for example, the dossier uh, released by the intelligence agencies in the United States gives absolutely no evidence of what they're putting out. Uh, they're saying that Russia influenced the elec- election. I think Russia may have tried to influence the election, but I think uh, James Comey was a much stronger uh, pro-Trump uh, actor in, in the, the situation. the FBI director exactly. who leaked yeah. that um, yeah. Hillary Clinton. And then on Tuesday, at, uh, on Tuesday in, in the Senate hearing, he says, quote, we never confirm or deny a pending investigation, which is exactly what he did. OK, look, we're coming uh, to the end of the programme and maybe, John, I'll give you the, the last word. Are you worried about um, Russia's actions, say, in the next 12 months? That we've, so it's bad enough with Brexit, it's bad enough with Trump, but Russia could prove to be a dangerous international actor. No, I'm not worried about Russia. I'm worried about Trump, okay. as <laughs> most <laughs> decent, civilised people are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both of them, both Putin and Trump, are enigmatic figures, but mm. the enigma that Trump poses is far more dangerous, uh, I think, than uh, that posed by Vladimir Putin. Okay, and he is going to be inaugurated next Friday, so next Saturday morning, <laughs> yeah. we will, probably along with everyone else, but no less, we we're going to be taking a look at the inauguration and perhaps what the next year will bring. So I will wrap it there for today. John O'Brennan, Ivor Crotty, Seamus Martin, many thanks for joining me today. Marion Kennedy was in sound. Thank you for listening.